Let's pray. Lord, help us learn how to care for each other. I pray that you open our hearts. I pray that you open my heart to the pain that our brothers and sisters experience. I ask that the Holy Spirit makes Jesus' love visible in our lives, that especially our hands and our feet are the ones of justice and care for all people. Amen. So we've been having an ongoing conversation here at Mosaic about what it means to be an anti-racist, all-inclusive church, or maybe more accurately in the way that I kind of think about things, what it means to practice a Jesus-centered, justice-focused faith. So today I want to talk about one way, just one, that you can make this Jesus-centered, justice-focused faith incredibly practical. I want to talk about how to care for each other, especially when others right here in our own community, in our own neighborhood, are in crisis or in need. So to illustrate what justice looks like in community who cares for each other well, I want to tell you two stories. If you know me, this is not a surprise. I think stories are one of the most powerful tools we have for justice. One story is from the second chapter in the Gospel of Mark, and the other story is a Philadelphia story. And after I tell you these stories, I want to give you some practical tips. So, part one. Mark, chapter two, and you have this in your handout. As I read from Mark 2, I want you to look for justice. And this is what I mean when I say justice this morning. I mean justice is feet. Justice is faith with feet. Or in the words of Dr. Cornell West, who says it much better, justice is what love looks like in public. So watch for justice in this story. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news quickly spread that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed, there was no more room, even outside the door. When he, there he was preaching God's word to them, and four men arrived, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head, and they lowered the man on his mat, right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what? Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to stay, say, stand up, pick up your mat, go walk. So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, go home. And the man jumped up. He grabbed his mat and he walked out in front of all the stunned onlookers. And they were all amazed. And they praised God. And they said, We have never seen anything like this before. Scholar pastors like Reverend um, Dr. Nicole Joshua and Reverend Chet Myers have explained that the book of Mark was written to show us what discipleship looks like. 
Or, in other words, the book's stories offer us stories for what it looks like to follow Jesus and be in a community that is justice-focused. This story and most of Mark's stories are about, by, and for those committed to God's work of justice and compassion. It's meant for people like us here in this room this morning. So in this story, we get a man who can't walk, and he's brought to Jesus by four of his friends. The man's friends carry him to see Jesus, who's preaching, in a house church, and it's totally packed out. There's no room inside. So the man's friends climb up the side of the house. They tear apart private property, and then they lower the man down inside. Let me pause and acknowledge there are several aspects of this story that are maybe a little eh, discomforting. For example, I continue to be confused by Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. When the text doesn't say the man said, hey, forgive my sins. And then there's this really nasty exchange between Jesus and the other highly religious people in the room who don't like what Jesus is doing at all. So I just want to say, if you're experiencing that kind of discomfort with this story, hold on to it. Don't dismiss it. But this morning, walk with me while we focus on justice in this story and focus on the man's friends. So if we understand caring as love out in public, how did the paralyzed man's community care for him? First, they believed their, their friend was worth their love and worth their care. They believed their friend was worth the love and worth the care of Jesus. They carried him. They hauled him up on a roof. They lowered their friend down. And most of all, they had faith. Seeing their faith, Jesus responds with healing, both of the heart and of the body. Second, these friends planned and deliberately sacrificed to care for him. Let me explain what I, what I mean here. None of this was easy. The story doesn't tell us what the friends did for a living, but it's a really safe bet in this particular town, which is mostly made up of fishermen and other, other service workers, that these friends were not wealthy. This story does not say that the four friends got together and then hired an Uber to take their friend to Jesus. They didn't have that kind of money. This little fishing town cues us to remember that missing a day of work when our friends need us is a hardship. It is a sacrifice. The man's friends were deliberate. They lost a day's wages. They also had to plan to carry someone over dirt roads, up stony hills, around little corners. And I don't know when, a, when you've last carried a full-grown person, it's not easy. It's deliberate. 
It's not an accident. And this deliberate planning part of care is really important because most of us have really good hearts and we intend to care for others when they hit a crisis moment. We want to help, but we don't plan for it. So by the time we go to work or we go to school, and after we remember to do a load of laundry because we're out of socks, and after we get the dinner leftovers put away, we're tired. And we're lulled into what's on Netflix. Okay, maybe this is just me. Our intentions are good. We intended to go down the street and see our neighbor who just came home from the hospital after having heart surgery. But we don't plan to do it. And then it's late, and it's dark, and we realize we didn't let her know that we were actually free the next day to drive her to an appointment. We didn't trim her bushes that were blocking the sidewalk. And worst of all, we didn't just pop in and say, hey, how are you? The friends planned. They even had rope. Maybe this, it was normal over 2,000 years ago to walk around with extra rope. I don't think it was. So they had a plan B to their plan A. The door was blocked with so many people. They had a plan B, let's go up on the roof. And here again we see sacrifice. Maybe they were all really strong and buff fishermen. And so lowering a grown person down with rope was no big deal. Or maybe it was a big deal. And they got rope burns, and the rope burns got infected. And for weeks later, they had muscle strain and infected hands because they sacrificed to care for their friend. My point is they planned, they sacrificed financially, emotionally, physically. Let me point out two things really quick that I don't see in this story. I don't see anything that suggests these four people brought their friend to Jesus because they thought he could pay them back later. Roman culture, much like American culture, was a culture that said, you owe me one for this. A culture rooted in the ideas of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. A community of mutual exchange. This is our culture. Hey, I owe you one for that, okay. Hey, remember when I helped you out? Maybe this doesn't seem so horrible on the surface, but I'm at a point in my life where I think, I think this is really scary. Because it says that your value is based on what you can give back to that person, what you can contribute. So what happens when you're at a place where you can't contribute? When you can't give back to that person that you owe? And what happens when it's like that for the rest of your life? You just owe more people and more people and you see what I mean. The way that I read the New Testament and the way that I read these Jesus-centered communities is they rejected the I owe you 
or you owe me culture. A Jesus-centered, justice-focused community doesn't keep score. There's no tally board. It's just care for who needs it. And this is so important for us to grasp because so much of the individual suffering that we see in our world today, right here in West Philly, is connected to systemic sins. Sins like white supremacy and racism and socioeconomic exploitation. And these are ingrained, robust systems that make suffering worse. And if you are trapped within that system, there is very rarely a point at which you are going to magically get out and therefore be able to pay back all the people that you owe. We are part of the problem if we only care for people because we think, oh, in a month when I need something, they'll be able to pay me back. There's one more thing that I don't see in this story of Mark. I don't see that these four people carried their paralyzed friend to Jesus out of pity. Pity is not love. Let me say that again. Pity is not love. Some of you know this truth to be painfully true because you know what it feels like to be pitied. The man who could not walk wasn't a charity case. In other translations, it just says they were friends, period. They loved him because they saw he was a child of God. They loved him and cared for him because they believed he was worth their time. They loved him and they cared for him because they believed he was worth their care. When care is done out of pity, triggers all sorts of feelings of shame and humiliation. It doesn't feel like love. It's embarrassing. And again, this is super important for us to understand because pity is connected to this mindset that we have in America that says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you can't do that, Aw, you poor thing. Every man for himself. Be tough. Be a fighter. And if you can't do that, oh, that's a shame. It is all too easy to pity the person. But that's not love. Caring for people like these friends cared for their friend is based in love, not pity. And it's not based in the expectation that they would ever be paid back. Let me give you another story, what this looks like a little closer to home. This is a Philadelphia story. Imagine Philadelphia over 150 years ago, before the Civil War. Philadelphia is full of horses. It smells really bad. The air is full of haze and dust and smoke from the textile industries, the oyster factories, and the shipbuilding factories down by the waters. 
Our city before the Civil War was a violently segregated one where Irish firehouses refused to put out fires if the homes belonged to a black person or belonged to an Italian immigrant. Youth gangs defined by national identity, such as Polish or Irish or French, owned the streets after dark, running the opium trade all over the city and shaking down business owners. But this Philadelphia was also an epicenter for American free black intellectual life, art, music, and religious expression. And in the middle of this messy, violent, diverse city, we meet Julia Foote, a 20-year-old black woman who believed that God had called her to preach, and she started traveling and preaching God's love and racial justice in 1843. She would go on to do so for the next 60 years of her life. And she did so in large part because she had fierce, loving communities, one of which was based here in Philadelphia, that cared for her well. Julia Foote appeared to be, I think fair to say, like most of us, completely unlikely for greatness in any way, shape, or form. She was the daughter of former slaves who had escaped the South, she was the mother, she was her mother, like so many other enslaved women, was a rape survivor, and one of Julia's older sisters was half white. Julia Foote had very little education. Her childhood had been spent working in white people's homes as a maid and as a servant. She was the young wife of a sailor. She got married when she was 16. She was a woman in the 19th century, and she was black. And unlikely as it seemed in the early 1840s, Reverend Foote became the first woman ordained as a deacon and then as a pastor in her denomination, which was the African Methodist Episcopal Church. For over 60 years, she filled sanctuaries and summer revival tents. She routinely preached to crowds of 5,000 and 10,000 here in Philadelphia. She became a beloved, respected, well-renowned evangelist. She is one of the reasons I have continued to be a Jesus follower, even though people who call themselves Christian in our culture today continue to disappoint me. She wrote an autobiography in 1879 in order to encourage other black women in their faith. And you have a link on your handout today where you can read that autobiography for free because of the Schoenberg Society up in New York City. She clarified over and over and over again in her sermons and in her autobiography that she succeeded, one, because of God's love, and two, because she had a community that cared for her. Her community kept her body alive. Justice is what love looks like in public. So how did, what did her community do? First, they believed she was worthy of their care. When her pastor ordered, to stop, ordered her to stop preaching, her friends rallied around her and said, no, 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 keep going. When she got very sick, 
because she was so afraid of what it meant to be a woman and to be a black person traveling in the 19th century preaching. Her friends took care of her. They nursed her back to health. They sat with her for weeks as she wrestled with this in her bedroom. They sang to her. They worked on their sewing while they sat. Babies were taken care of right there. They had shifts in her house so she was never alone. They paid her rent. They paid for doctors. And they blocked the pastor from coming into the house. They took care of her because they believed that she was worthy of their care. They did not buy into a system of patriarchy that said women should be quiet. They didn't buy into a system of white supremacy that said black people should be quiet. They took care of her. And they planned. And they deliberately sacrificed. None of this was easy. They traveled with her all over the United States here in the Mid-Atlantic region, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, but all the way out to California and everywhere in between. They carried her bags, they washed her clothes, they mended her hats, they organized themselves in these large free black networks to make sure she had food to eat while she traveled because as a black woman she was barred from hotels and barred from restaurants in most towns. They bought and traded special tea leaves for her exhausted throat, exhausted throats from preaching to 10,000 people at a time. They sat up all night in the hallways of sleazy roadside inns, protecting her with their bodies from racist and sexist attacks. They didn't pity her. She wasn't a charity case. They loved her because they saw she was a child of God and was worth their time. Our world says, you owe me for this. A Jesus-centered, justice-focused culture says, you don't owe me for anything. You're worth so much more than this. Care as a part of justice means we don't expect anything in return. Reverend Foote was never able to pay back any of these gifts. She was poor her whole life. Let me finish this morning with some concrete advice. Because every single one of us in this room knows someone who's going through a difficult time. How can you convey to people that they're worthy of your care? My first suggestion, for example, just be with them. Be with them. Listen to them. Even when you're uncomfortable. Listen to them even when your culture-soaked American brain is screaming that probably this person is in this mess partially because they made really stupid decisions. Be with them and listen to them anyway. Don't judge them. Don't blame them. Don't joke at their expense about their suffering. 
Don't minimize their pain. Well, it could have been worse. Don't tell them to buck up and be positive. Don't pity them. Don't make them into a problem to be solved, something to be fixed. Take off your advisory hat and just be with them. And if you say anything at all, be accepting of their feelings. Tell them, it sounds like you're really sad, and this is really scary, and I'm so sorry. Listen. And if you do talk, don't make it about you. In preparing for this sermon, I got so many emails and texts and messages on Facebook about horrible, crazy things that people say to other people when they're suffering and pain. And the number one thing that rose to the top was people make it about themselves. Somebody maybe is headed for divorce and all of a sudden everybody tells them, the person in pain, their stories of divorce. Yeah, not helpful. A person loses their father to cancer, and all of a sudden, everybody comes out of the woodwork with stories of, oh my goodness, and this person died too. Don't make it about you. It's about this other person. Just be with them. It might be that the person in need appears to be privileged in so many ways that you don't think that they need you at all. Perhaps this person has money, already has networks, doesn't need food because they can pay for it to be brought to their house, doesn't need a ride to the hospital. And I'm going to suggest this person in crisis needs you to be with them and to listen just as much as everyone else. This person still needs care. This person still needs to be listened to. So go be with the person who's in pain. Let them know that they're worthy of your time. It is so easy to care for someone that you can relate to. It is a lot harder to care for someone that Jesus says, this person is your neighbor, even if you don't relate to them in any way, shape, or form. So start by being with the person who's in crisis. And when you move beyond listening, if you move beyond listening, be gentle. Be gentle. Ask for consent before you do things. Ask permission to pray with them. Follow what they feel comfortable with. Ask permission to share their situation with others. Touch them or hug them only with their consent. Ask them, I tend to hug people. Would a hug be okay? And if they say no, control your face. It struck me writing this this week that wouldn't it be amazing if Jesus' followers became known for our respect for other people's boundaries. Mm. 
Two, plan to sacrifice. Plan and sacrifice, but plan to sacrifice. Caring is best when it's concrete. Instead of saying, hey, give me a ring if you need anything, which is so overwhelming for a person who's in the middle of junk. Offer something concrete. Offer, hey, on Thursday, I could take your kids. Offer a specific night of supper. Give them a concrete offer, something that they need, like Julia Foote's friends did. Caring for others might mean you have less money. Caring for others might mean you have less sleep. It might mean that you become a target of the police in your neighborhood because you have befriended people that they do not deem worthy. Plan to sacrifice. And finally, let me suggest that sacrificing to care for people is an honor. Being allowed into someone's life in the middle of a crisis is an honor and a privilege. To be allowed into someone's life when they're hurting, when it might be safer for them to stay quiet, when it might be safer for them to hide, it is an honor. And so how do we behave when something is an honor? We tread lightly. We're careful. We don't make things about ourselves. We manage our own emotions. So on that note, let me give a pitch to something else that I lead in this church. And that's called restore. If you are someone who cares for people a lot, in your daily life, and you are stressed out, and it's exhausting, and you find yourself absorbing that pain. On the first and third Mondays of each month, I lead Restore. Restore is a place for people to read a poem or a story together, and then we do a spiritual practice. We do it together, and it's something you can take home and then do on your own. Restore is designed to be friendly to people who have been burned by the church in the past. Restore is designed for people who want to deepen their understanding of their faith and practice those caring, empathetic muscles. Restore has already started, and tomorrow we meet again at 7 at my place. Okay, to wrap this up, asking for help is so scary. So let me say to you, if you're in the position where you need help, you're in the position right now of knowing exactly what it feels like to be in pain and crisis, please tell me. Tell other leaders in the church. We're here. We want to be there for you. But let me end with this. Don't be too idealistic. At some point, if it hasn't happened before, people in our church, leaders in our church, will disappoint you. I will disappoint you in my new role as care coordinator. You'll call me, and I won't pick up. You'll email me, and then I'll email you back, but it'll only be in my brain, and you won't actually get it in real life. 
So if you are thinking about reaching out, please decide now that you're going to stick around even when we disappoint you. Ask again. Please give us another chance. Because if you leave, if you retreat backwards, if you put up those walls again, you are going to miss the way that Jesus comes in. You're going to miss the way that roofs literally get holes put in them so the love of Jesus can be seen. You're going to miss the way that Jesus' love and care fills in our cracks and our brokenness. And that's so beautiful. God's care for us is so beautiful and so good. And I don't want any of us to miss out on that.